Worship is our response to the revelation of God. God makes the choice to reveal himself to us, and we make the choice every day to respond to his revelation. So worship is this deliberate, intentional action we take of coming into God's presence, of becoming attuned and attentive and responsive to him, of slowing down, of becoming still, of seeking after his face, of listening to the voice of God and being directed by him, of learning how to praise him, learning how to bless him, learning how to receive forgiveness from him, of praying in the spirit. You can see we have so much to learn and experience. So I wanted to spell at the outset a notion that worship only happens for one hour on Sunday mornings. Worship can happen anywhere, anytime. The video you just saw makes the point it's easier to worship God at the ocean or on vacation or at the mountains when we see God's beauty. But on our daily commute, driving down 270, (laughs) riding on the metro, getting around in the city, dealing with the stresses of life, walking down crowded streets, we can lose touch with God. When we're back in the crowds and when the distractions mount, when the beauty hides, I want us to learn how to keep our God focus. I want to be worshiping God throughout the course of the week, focused on who he wants me to be, on what he wants me to do, of bringing God into my everyday life. I want us to become real worshipers. So here's what I did this week. I meditated upon this psalm we're going to begin with. Psalm 63. So you have in your Bibles, you can open up the 63 Psalm. Now, Psalm 63 could be a psalm you meditate upon this week. In an effort to worship God, we need to engage at the level of spirit with the Word of God. This psalm was written by David when he was in the desert. David was called a man after God's own heart. David was a worshiper. He loved to go down to Jerusalem and worship the Lord. He loved to be in God's presence. David loved the Lord. David loved to sing praises to the Lord. He loved to give thanks to the Lord. He experienced God's delivering power, and he saw God's glory. But David is not in Jerusalem when he writes this psalm. David finds himself in the desert. The desert is a barren place. The desert can be a lonely place. The desert is a metaphor metaphor to speak of when life becomes difficult. David has been driven from Jerusalem, where God was present in the sanctuary, where he regularly worshipped God, where he met with God and beheld God's glory. I love the psalm because it begins, God You are my God. I kind of think about David being a regular kind of guy. He had his ups, he had his downs, he had his highs and lows. And when he was 17 years old, he was asked by his father Jesse to go to the battlefront to deliver some food. And there he saw a giant, nine feet tall. His name was Goliath, a champion. And David wanted to fight him because this giant was trash-talking God and trash-talking God's people. And so his brothers tried to send him home to take care of the sheep. They didn't believe David could win the battle. The commander-in-chief, the king, also wanted to send him home, 
believing he was just a boy and this man was a champion. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And that day, God delivered David. He said, God, you are my God. Delivering God, you are my deliverer. Mighty God, you are my mighty God. Loving God, you are my loving God. David, at times, would sin and would appeal to the mercy of God, the compassion of God to forgive him. Loving God, you are my loving God. And shepherding God, you are my shepherd. Earnestly, I seek after you. Literally, at the dawn hour, I seek you. In the early morning hours, I seek after you, O God. For there's one thing that I seek. This is what I desire. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. David is saying, I thirst for you. David sees himself thirsting for God as a man might thirst after water in the desert. If you've ever known real thirst, you know what David is talking about here. I once was in a place where (laughs) there wasn't much to drink for about two weeks. And I can remember the insatiable desire to satisfy my thirst. It was as if nothing else mattered beyond satisfying and slaking that thirst. David is longing for God. Most people don't know that God is their soul's desire. Early I will seek you. I thirst for you, O God. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched place. Maybe that's where you are this morning. In a dry and parched place. I long for you. The psalm was sung at the beginning of each day. Do you long to experience God's presence? Do you have a desire to be close to God? About a thousand years after David wrote this psalm, David's greater son, Jesus Christ, said, Ask, and it will be given unto you. Seek, and you will find. And knock, and the door will be opened unto you. And the second verse speaks to his past experience, which I'm hoping becomes your present experience. He said, I have seen you in the sanctuary. God is able to remove the veil over our eyes so we get a glimpse of how beautiful God is. God is able to restore us and restore our sight. And I have beheld your power and your glory. When the ark of God was returned to Jerusalem, David danced with all of his might before the Lord. No inhibitions, no reservations. <laughs> Do you think there's any inhibitions we have in worship? Any reservations? Any fear of what people might say if they see us uninhibited? Because your life, he says, verse 3, is better than, your love is better than my life. My lips will glorify you. I was reflecting on this verse, verse 3, and I was thinking, I know a song that says that verse. Your love is better than life. And it came back to me. Thy loving kindness is better than life. Thy loving kindness is better than life. 
My lips will praise you. Thus will I bless you. I will lift up my hands unto your name. God has the capacity to satisfy our deepest longings. God does not hold himself back from them and seek after him. Rather, God gives himself fully to those who seek him. David is extolling the love of God. The word is hased, meaning loving kindness or the covenant love of God. It stresses the continuance of God's love through life's journey. God's love is steady and unchanging, which is why it is better than the best thing in life itself. You know, we believe that life is good. We just came through Thanksgiving. But if we're being robbed, wouldn't we give up our wallet rather than be shot to hang on to life? Wouldn't you give up your wallet rather than be shot? Sure, you would. You you value life. And wouldn't you, if you faced a life-threatening situation, undergo surgery to hold on to your life? You see, life is very precious. But there's something better than life itself, and that is the love of God. Because God is my God, because my God's love is better than my life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. You see, when we learn to praise God, it changes the atmosphere of the room. If suddenly, spontaneously, one after another in this room began to praise God, it would change the very atmosphere of this room because God inhabits our praises. When we praise God, it begins to confuse the enemy because it counters the enemy's attack. The enemy would have us focus on the hopelessness of the situation and curse God. But praise puts our focus on a God who is sovereign and loving and good. And we realize he can help us in the midst of this situation. We need to learn the language of praise and blessing God and declaring who he is. Now I'm working with a thesis and here it comes. I really believe that as God pours his love into our lives. As we then understand his love, we are becoming his beloved. Our identity is being changed. And then out of that new identity and out of that love of God, we begin to love others. He says his love will satisfy us more than the richest of foods. Imagine a Thanksgiving feast, the very best thing you ate the turkey with the gravy, or the mashed potatoes, or the sweet potatoes, or the green beans, or the pumpkin pie with the whipped cream on top. The riches of all foods. God can satisfy our souls in a way that food can never satisfy us. And then 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. This is what John wrote, meditating on the love of God. He said, dear friends, let us love one another. John begins this section talking about us being the beloved. I love myself being called the beloved. When Debbie calls me on the phone, cell phone, she has a special ring and it comes up, beloved Debbie. I never want to forget that Debbie is my beloved. And God doesn't want you to forget that you are also his beloved. John knew firsthand the love of God. 
And he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So it makes sense. He would say, beloved or dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Every moment of your life is an opportunity then to receive the love of God or to give this love to somebody. And before God, before love comes pouring out of us, love must flow into us. It's like this with an account. First of all, you must have something in the account before you draft a check on that account. And God has put much into our accounts. When we were broke, God made us rich with his love. When we owed a debt we could not pay, God paid the debt in full out of his deep, deep love for you. When you hated yourself, God did not hate you. God showed you the reality of his love. Love comes from God. Love begins with God. Because God is love. Before the creation of the world, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit loved one another. And when we were made, we were made to have a love relationship with God. God made us to love him and to love one another. So everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Being born of God is speaking of the spiritual birth that happens when we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And knowing God is speaking of having a relationship with God in the present tense. So the love of God is like a mighty river flowing from the heart of God, flowing into the heart of man, the heart of woman, and flowing out of them to one another. But oh, how we differ and how we feel love from one another. My wife's, Debbie's, love language is kind deeds done of service to her. My own personal love language is time spent with people. So if I spend time with you, I'm trying to show love to you, listening and encouraging, exhorting. But Debbie's love language is more like deeds done. I guess there's a time for doing and there's a time for talking. So a love question to ask Debbie is, honey, what can I do for you? And she feels loved. She'll always have an answer. And her second favorite question is, what else can I do for you? Her first love language question is, what can I do for you? Because there's a lot on her mind to do. The second question is, what else can I do for you? Some of you have the love language of gift giving or gift receiving. You know how I know that? When you're given a gift, you kind of study the box the gift is given is. You make comments about the paper. You kind of ooh and awe about the size of the gift, the shape of the gift. You study the wrapping. You kind of slowly unwrap the present. You kind of slowly tear the paper. And then you examine the gift, and you feel this sentimental kind of love that someone has given you a present. Oh, they were thinking of me. I'm loved. Some of you have the gift of, or the love language of affirmation. You just love for someone to speak words of affirmation to you. You're really beautiful. You really did a good job. You see, we all crave love. But pay close attention to the eighth verse. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. The litmus test to determine 
whether somebody knows God or doesn't know God, is whether they love or they don't love. Jesus gave us this great command, a new command I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so you should love one another. And by this, all men will know you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. They will not know that you are Christians by your political affiliation. They won't know you're Christians by how affluent you are. They won't know you're Christians by the size of the Bible you carry, and some of you carry a mighty big Bible. But they will know you are Christians by your love. They won't know you're a Christian if you judge them, if you condemn them, if you criticize them. But they'll know you're a Christian by your love. There was a man, he was sitting in a mall, and he found himself watching the people walking by. Some of them were thin and some were a little overweight. Some were relatively beautiful and some were ugly. Some were affluent and some were poor. And he found himself categorizing people realizing that there's some people he would spend time with and some people he wouldn't spend 10 minutes with. And the Spirit of God began developing this conviction inside of his heart that he really wasn't loving the people, he was really judging the people. You see, judgment was what the Pharisees did. They didn't really love people, they judged them and condemned them. God is love. God's nature is to love. God's essence is loving. We can or cannot love. We can be loving or unloving. But God cannot not love because God's love flows from his being. And when we get to know God, we know how deeply loved we are because God's love is without conditions, without measures, and eternal. We cannot increase God's love for us by being good. And we cannot diminish God's love for us by our sin. The greatest thing in all the world, then, is the love of God. A father's love for his daughter may fail, but God's love never fails. And a daughter's love for her, fault, for her father may falter, but God's love never falters. So if you buy the premise that God is love, how did God then demonstrate his love to us? This is how God showed his love to us. The truth is that God has always been showing his love to us. The question was asked concerning Israel. Why were they chosen? And Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 says, The Lord set his affection upon you. The Lord chose you, not because you were the most numerous of all the people. Indeed, you were the fewest. But the Lord loved you, and he redeemed you with his mighty hand. That God had set his favor and affection upon a people. God was showing his affection and tenderness toward them. God did not choose you then because there was anything within yourself that was lovely. The greatest expression of the love of God is the death of his son. That God demonstrates his love towards us in that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
This is how then God manifested his love. To manifest means to come out in the open with, to make public. It is the opposite of to hide or to become secret with. So why was the love of God manifested? It was manifested to take away our sins, to carry our sins away to a faraway place. He was manifested to destroy the work of the devil. Still to this day, the devil would have you believe that God could not love you given all you have done. That your sin is greater than God's grace. That what you've done has outweighed what God has done. That you would forfeit God's love every time you sin. That you haven't done enough yet to merit God's love. If I were to ask you this morning, does God love you? Most of you, perhaps all of you, would say, yes, God loves me. But to many of us, there is a disconnect between what we know intellectually and what we feel to be true. And therein lies the trouble. We trust what we feel to be true rather than what we know to be true. We look around at the state of our relationships. I mean, you just came through Thanksgiving, right? Were there any strains in those relationships, any stresses within any family? <laughs> we, look at, we look at our past relationships and our failure to love there. We look at our enemies bringing the attack against us. We look at ourselves being 40, hoping to love somebody, and there's nobody on the horizon. Our feelings tell us that nobody loves us, not even God. God may love the world. He may love everybody else, but he doesn't love me. If he did, I wouldn't feel so lonely and unloved. Now, we don't say this out loud, but this is what we feel in our heart. So a lie has been planted in our mind, and we dwell on the lie until we believe it to be true. You may have grown up in a difficult, distant family where love was always conditional. I will love you if, or I'll love you until, or I love you because. As a result, it is hard for you to believe that God's love for you is unconditional. You may believe that whenever you make a mistake, you should punish yourself. It's hard for you to believe that Jesus Christ on the cross took your punishment. The truth is that God does love you, whether you feel loved or not, regardless of what you have done or where you've come from, that God loves with an infinite, incomprehensible love, that God loves me not on the basis of what I have done, his love is not based on anything I have done or ever will do for him. His love is not based on my performance. I do not deserve this love. I never could have earned this love. Look at verse 10. Because this is love. Not that we love God. It's not about what we did. It's about who he is and what he did for us. It's all about God's passionate, consuming, powerful love for us. It's all about a God who loved us enough to send his son. You see, at Christmas, we begin to think about the incarnation of God sending his son into this world. Why did God the Father send God the Son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for mankind's sin? The baby became a man. 
The baby as a child would hold on to his mother's hand. But the child become a man took nails in his hand and thus became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. As if we didn't understand it the first time, John repeats it a second time in verse 11. Dear friends, dear, dearly beloved, <laughs> since God so loved us, this is the truth you need to hang on to when you feel so hurt and wounded. Beloved, because God so loved us, God calls us to respond. Because God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Why is that? Because God is invisible. But when you love somebody, the love of God becomes visible to them. God in our world is unseen, but God is living in the heart of every Christian. And when that Christian loves somebody, the love of God becomes seen through what they do. You see, if a person is hungry and you give them something to eat, you're showing the love of God. And when a person is thirsty and you give them something to drink, you're manifesting to them the love of God. And when a person is in prison and they're all alone and you visit them, you're showing to them the love of God. And when a person does not have clothes and you clothe them, you're showing to them the love of God. You see, the love of God flows from heaven into us, changing our identity, making us his beloved, and then begins to flow out of our lives. Jesus knew the deep, deep love of God the Father. He knew his identity as being the beloved. This is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And then love flowed out of his heart unto others. And that is what worship really is. It is loving God. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. Jesus was asked this question. What is the greatest of all the commandments? What is the bottom line? What makes a life worth living? What gives meaning to your life? Why are you here upon this earth? That's the question. What is the greatest of all the commandments that were given by God? And this is what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. For all the law of the prophets hang on these commandments. I call this first part of this the upward look. Worshiping God, loving him. The worship of God begins with knowing the great love of God. Then our response is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind. The heart is the center of our being. It's the place where the affections reside. The place where our passion comes out of. So what are you passionate about? I know somebody whose passion is helping students learn. And she loves the Lord her God by becoming an awesome teacher. I know somebody whose passion is fighting injustice. He loves the Lord his God by being a police officer. I know someone whose passion is giving dignity to the last few days of life. And he loves the Lord his God by working with hospice. 
I know somebody whose passion is soccer, and she loves the Lord by how she plays on the field. Take all you are and love God with that. And do not be consumed with the lesser passions. You say, Pastor R., what is the lesser passion? Well, that would be football. Well, I understand some of you play football out of your love for God. But let me tell you what happened yesterday in Alabama. There was a football game between Auburn and Alabama, and the state of Alabama stopped. I mean, people didn't drive. People didn't go to the hospital. People in the hospital were looking at the screen because there's this thing in Alabama between Auburn and Alabama. My son lives in Alabama. Children's cries are neglected. Wives' voices are not heard because what's happening in the state of Alabama is this football game between Auburn and Alabama, waiting for the outcome of the game. You see, it's possible that our great passion for God can become diluted, if you will, with another passion. What Jesus is saying is, make God first. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Love the Lord your God in the morning when you rise. Love the Lord your God when you lie your weary head down to sleep. Love the Lord your God when you do what you do. Love Him with all of your heart. Love him with a soft, sensitive, tender heart, responsive to his promptings upon you. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with affection and with passion. And love him also with your soul. You see, worship is the language of the soul. So when we're loving God with our soul, we are worshipers. The soul is the expression of our personality. And some of you have very expressive personalities in the context of worship. And you should be free to express your love for God with your soul. And some of you have more reserved personalities, concerned about perhaps what other people think. When we love the Lord our God, there's freedom in this house to express with our souls our love for God. And love the Lord your God with all your mind, developing this mindset, this attitude, that wherever I am, with whomever I am, I will worship him. I will love him. I'll be remindful of the love of God poured out to me, that I love him with my mind, my attitude, my mindset. I have a mindset then to worship. So the upward look has to do with loving God. That's the starting point. And then Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm calling this the inward look, becoming the beloved. The more we reflect on the love of God, the more we love God with our heart, soul, and mind, the more we understand our true identity. The upward look is loving God from the heart. The inward look is becoming the beloved of God, owning our new identity as the beloved. I want you to turn to your neighbor now and tell them you are the beloved. Hmm. My only hope would be those words would reverberate in your soul. The greatest gift I could give you is to tell you the gift of being God's beloved. 
You can only take possession of that gift if you claim it for yourself that you are God's beloved. Isn't what life's all about? Treating each other as beloved? Yet there's a voice that speaks from within and above that whispers softly and shouts loudly that you are my beloved. It's not easy to hear that voice in a world filled with voices that shout, you are no good, you are ugly, and you are worthless. These voices are so persistent and so loud, it's easy to believe them. And that's the great trap, the trap of self-rejection. We've come to believe voices that tell us that we are unloved and we are worthless. Henry Nouwen, writing about this, says, I'm surprised how quickly I hear that voice when I am accused or criticized. As soon as I'm rejected, left alone, abandoned, I find myself saying once again, I really am a nobody. Instead of taking a careful look at the circumstances and discerning the voice of God or the enemy, I believe the enemy's voice. I tend to agree with that voice and blame myself for who I am or what I have done. The dark side says I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. But perhaps you're tempted more, not by self-rejection, but by arrogance. Isn't arrogance the other side of self-rejection? Isn't arrogance putting yourself on a pedestal to avoid being seen as you really are? Self-rejection and arrogance are the greatest enemies of the spiritual life because they contradict the sacred voice that says, you are the beloved. Being God's beloved, then, is the core truth of your existence. And when you step into your true identity of being the beloved of God, of knowing the deep, deep love of Jesus for you, then what flows out of your life is love. Let's call this the outward look, loving your neighbor. The upward look is loving God. The inward look is becoming his beloved. But the outward look is loving your neighbor. If we jump just forward to loving your neighbor without loving God, becoming the beloved, we will practice religion to gain the favor of God. But if we truly love our neighbor out of the love that God has shown to us, out of our belovedness, then power will flow from our life as we love them. Let me, be, let me conclude with four different things I want to say to you about worship and about love. First off, we must continue to accept how much God loves you. 1 John 4, 16. So we know and rely on the love God has for us. Are there things in life you can't rely upon? Like, for instance, your car. Can you rely upon your car to start every day? Can you rely upon the promises of others? But you can certainly know and rely on the love that God has for you. Think about the most tender love you've ever known. Think about the deepest love you've ever felt. Think about the strongest love that's ever been poured into your life. Then multiply it by infinity, and perhaps you can glimpse 
the love of God. For whoever lives in this love lives in God and God in them. There is nothing we can ever do to make God love us less. There's nothing we can ever do to make God love us more. Because whoever lives in God lives in love. It's like this. If you go into a coffee shop, you're going to smell like coffee. If you go into a bar, you're going to smell like smoke. But if you go into the presence of God, you're going to smell like love. Because God himself is love. And we know and rely on the love God has for us because God himself is love. Secondly, we must continue to give love to God and others. Part of worship, then, is coming into God's presence and giving love to God. This is how we know what love really is, John says. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay our lives down for others. So if we see our brother or sister in need and we have no pity for them, how can the love of God be in us? Now this. Dear children, let us not love with our words. I love you. Let us not love with political speeches. But let us love with our actions and with our truth. Let's take this love of God that's powerful in our lives and show this love of God to somebody. God, show me somebody this week whom I can love. We must continue to love God and give love to God and to others. And third, we must continue to grow in our ability to love. Look at this prayer in Philippians 1.9. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depths of insight. As we understand the depth and the reality of God's deep, deep love for us, then our prayer is, God, may your love inside of me abound like a mighty river overflowing its banks to the parched and dry soil all around me. Keep on loving one another as your brother and as your sister. And if you love those who love you, <laughs> what credit is that to you? <laughs> That's kind of like Olive Garden, right? While you're here, you're family, right? Come into our restaurant, you're family, we'll eat together. But come into our restaurant, who are you, right? If we love those who love us, what credit is that to us? Even sinners love those who love them. So we pray, Abba, Father, I really can't love this person. What they have done to me has wounded my soul. In fact, I don't love them. I hate them. But Jesus, you don't hate them. You love them. Holy Spirit, pour out your love into my heart. Jesus, you suffered for my sin, and I am suffering. But you've shown me the depth of your love and I am your beloved. So out of the love you have given to me, let me to love. God, incarnate love into my life. We must continue as Christians to grow in our love, to love our neighbor, to love our families, to love 
our enemies, to grow in our ability to love. And the last thing I want to say to you is we must allow God to help us continuing loving, especially when we feel like giving up on love. (laughs) It is so easy to quit in love. (laughs) It's so easy to give up on love. But it's God who gives us endurance and encouragement. (laughs) Endurance is persevering to the finish line. It is saying, God, I need some help continuing to love. It's just being honest and admitting, I'm feeling like I'm going to give up on loving this person. Do you have somebody in your life who's really irritating? Somebody who's really annoying? Do you have somebody you're really disagreeing with? Do you have someone who's attacking you, like every time they see you, it's an opportunity to attack you and pounce on you? Do you have any letters being written about you? Any kind of harsh emails coming in your direction? Anybody you're thinking about giving up on loving? (laughs) Our prayer is, God, give me the endurance and give me the encouragement to have the same attitude of mind toward one another that Jesus Christ had. You see, love... 1 Corinthians tells us, is really patient. And love is kind. Could I say that R is patient? Could I say that R is all the time kind? I could not. Could I say that Jesus is patient? Could I say that Jesus is kind? I could. Could I say that Jesus in R is patient, and Jesus living his life through R is kind. When I think about the kindness of God, of how kind God has been towards us, I think about Jesus coming to a wedding, and they'd run out of wine. Not only was he kind enough to come, but he was kind enough to turn the water into wine and save the day. He showed his glory at that wedding because he was so kind. And then there was Zacchaeus, And Zacchaeus was a wee little man, living up in a tree. Well, climbed up in a tree. And nobody wanted to have anything to do with Zacchaeus. They all scorned him and rejected him because he'd done some bad things. But Jesus was kind enough to call him by name. But he was kind enough to go to his house and have dinner with Zacchaeus. That's how kind Jesus was to Zacchaeus. And then there was a woman. She had this issue of blood. Twelve years she'd been bleeding. And she came through a crowd, and Jesus was kind enough to let her touch him. But then he was even kinder to say, daughter, go in peace. You see, there's an enormous kindness running through the life of Jesus. And then it says that love keeps no record of wrongs. Love blots them out, right? Love erases these transgressions. Father, forgive my transgressions trespasses, even as I forgive others. Since God has been so kind to me and so patient to me, wiping away my sin, that when I am offended, if I'm thinking of the love of God, I can extend that love by forgiving the person who has offended me. We must allow God to continue loving through us. (laughs) There was a day there was a day when I did not know of the love of God. And I can remember somebody telling me, God really loves you. And I can remember thinking, 
no way. <laughs> There's no way in the world that God loves me. After everything I have done, I was so hearing this voice of self-rejection, this voice of self-loathing, this voice of self-hatred. It was so hard for the love of God to penetrate. So what God did was he put around me people who really loved me, who really listened to me, who really encouraged me, who spoke the word into my life, who formed community. And before long, I began to realize that God really did love me. You may be that vessel set apart from, for God that brings the love of God into your neighborhood, into your workplace, into your school, to show people that God really is love. See, what happens is, first of all, we have the love of God flow into our hearts. Our identity becomes changed. We are his beloved. And then that love flows out of us to others. Pray with me. Father, we're very early in a series now concerning worship. And we have so much to learn about loving you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. We have so listened to the voice of the enemy and believed the lie that we are unloved. This morning, in Jesus' name, we renounce that lie and we believe that we are deeply loved. No matter how we feel, we will believe the truth that we are loved with a love without measure, a love without conditions, a love that was demonstrated to us on the cross when Jesus carried our sins far, far away. Father, we want to learn what it means to worship you, just to respond to that revelation and to love you back and to own our identity as your beloved children, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. God, do a deep, deep work in each one of us. May we overflow with this love, we pray in Jesus' name.